Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Let the word go forth. Fool me once. Are you fired up? I'm not a crook. Are you ready to go? Shame on Shame on you. It's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, hosted by Ben Kissel. Boom, we can't get fooled again. Hey, what's up, everyone? How you doing? Ben Kissel here. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Um, of course, we remember our good friend Kevin Barnett and uh, reminds us to hug our friends and love our friends because you never know when uh, when you won't be able to see them again. So make sure you take your take an opportunity to talk to the ones you love. All right, with me today, I am just honored to have her with me. Um, she is uh, a multiple time documentarian. Uh, she's written multiple books. Uh, she's been featured uh, on multiple. Web- websites even everything's in multiples um and her most recent documentary which you must go see immediately i know here in new york city it's playing at ifc check that out on avenue of americas astra taylor is with us the new documentary is what is democracy and i guess um has there ever been a more appropriate time for a documentary entitled what is democracy i know i i still kind of get a thrill like hearing you say that like her new documentary and then it's this incredibly nerdy title but that it's like the moment I can just be like, there's like a subset of people who are like, yeah. And then everyone else is like, huh? Um, but you know, it is, it's probably the best possible moment that a film with that title could come out. Um, yeah, it's I, funny I'm, because I, I actually started, I started, I wrote the first email pitching it to my producer in 2013 when it was definitely, um, uh, less of an, uh, sort of easy case to make. Right. Um, right. Most people, but, but the timing is the timing is right. People are thinking about democracy, and, and that's what this film is about. It's an invitation to think. Well, absolutely, they are, and I think that's always uh, for you know the better. One of the unintended consequences of the recent political events, specifically in 2016, was that it motivated a lot of people. And I know that you have a history of of being politically motivated, specifically when it comes to the Occupy Wall Street movement. You were pretty hands on uh, regarding that. What are you seeing right now as far as people taking proactive steps to, first of all, maybe answer the question, what is democracy? And second of all, how are they making, um, how are they being proactive in preserving democracy? Oh, and what is what I mean? And maybe we can even go way back and just what what is your idea of what democracy is? Yeah, I mean, part of why I started working on this film and why I was thinking about it in 2015 was my experience in Occupy. And, you know, Occupy, I think, was really interesting in the sense that it was a critical moment. You know, the right. Obama presidency is happening, and yet there are, you know, still social problems. You know, the, the banks got bailed out. You know, oh, inequality yeah. um, was 
rising. And, you know, I think it, it, it put this kind of class consciousness on the radar and, right. and was really important in terms of, you know, naming the 1%. But it was a movement that refused to make demands. That was just, it was just what it was. Right. And, you know, so, and there was a, an idea of direct democracy. So this idea of, you know, assembly, everybody could join and, and a, a lot of, you know, pointing out what, what was flawed with the political system and the way that, um, that we don't have democracy, but there was a, there was a, for me, there was a disconnect in terms of, you know, what, what actually having democracy would mean, how we would democratize the economy. Um, you know, what, <laughs> like, okay, we know what we're against. What are we for? And, right. and this model of an assembly anyone can join is just totally untenable. Right. Um, so we would march down the street and chant, this is what democracy looks like. And I would be like, I hope, I hope. Yes, I hope, but I hope it also looks like a lot more than this. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, it was a really, but I think it was a really, you know, critical, critical moment. And what we're seeing now, I think, you know, of course, you know, there is a certain person who is, is the president, you know, he's not the subject of my film who sort of comes in briefly, actually more as an example of the, the kind of demagogue that, that even Plato warned of, uh, right. years ago, but, but, you know, this moment has, I think you're exactly right, inspired a lot of people who were complacent, you know, or, or maybe tuned out or, or just maybe just did their duty and voted, but didn't do much more to, to reassess and, and think more deeply. So I see, I see a lot of things to worry about, but I see a lot of things that really interest me. I mean, I think youth activism, like, you know, kids who are not old enough to vote are striking for the climate, pushing back on, on, uh, gun violence and, and yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, people who are profiting from making weapons. Um, I think we see strikes. I mean, look at the, the sort of new sense that labor is powerful. So we have, a, and we also, of course, have a new generation of you know, candidates who are diverse in the Democratic Party. So what's really interesting is like the sense of democracy is something that's inside and outside. You know, it's yes, voting and running for office and paying attention to what's happening in Washington, D.C. or your capital building in your state, or it's also the sense like we need we need to build power at the grassroots and we need right. to also pay attention to how you build economic leverage for working people. And that's through things like unions and being conscious of ourselves as workers, you know, who, you know, it's really interesting. Trump tried to shut down the government, right? Right. But what he did was he didn't pay people. It was actually the threat that workers were not going to work. Those are the people who, get, who actually have the power to shut things down. Absolutely. And so I just, yeah. And so I think it's just, it's, it's a worrying, but also really interesting time. And the film tries to have that, you know, like, it doesn't give false hope. It's like, yeah, things are hard. It's always been hard. Democracy right. is not easy. But people, it, it's also, you know, something that has managed to advance and progress. And, you know, it progresses through struggle. And so here we are. Absolutely. And, you know, when it comes to the government shutdown, what we saw, what was it, 35 days just ended uh, this past Friday with uh, legislation that literally was the same legislation uh, that Donald Trump said no, he vetoed, or he, he wouldn't look at it a day before the shutdown. And uh, it's just, you know, more evidence that this was nothing but a political stunt um, on the backs of 800,000 federal workers who keep our planes in the air, which I am quite fond of um, as someone who flies, and I know that you do too. I like when the planes take off, and I love it when they land. Yeah, it was probably, though, you know, his, you, you closed LaGuardia for a couple hours, and a bunch of rich people are extra pissed, you know? Yep. Um. So you talk about, you know, it's interesting. Obviously, we're talking a lot about economics uh, when it comes to yeah. uh, Elizabeth Warren has uh, has her sort of 1% tax plan, a tax of 1% or 3% on people making 10 million bucks or more, $50 billion, uh, you know, to sort of peel away a little bit of the excess wealth from certain groups of people. But when it comes to 
the working class people of this country. That's one that's one kind of angle, you know, attacks on the wealthy. But when it comes to job creation and when it comes to what the future looks like, I know you wrote a um, one of your writings was called The Faux Revolution, a field guide to the future of work. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on what is the future of work for people in this country? Is it is basically a UBI, a uni- universal basic income? Is that going to be one of the last last options when it comes to uh, people and automation and just getting jobs in general? Okay, wow. Yeah, so I have this other, you know, I have have this other trajectory. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, I make documentaries that tend to have a very philosophical bent. So, you know, the film is about democracy, but it's in a philosophical mode. And what is democracy? What does it mean for the people's rule? Who are the people? How right. do we rule? Where do we rule? Um, and it, it takes a very long time horizon. So it's global in its scope geographically, but then it also uh, travels across millennia. So, but one thing that's really absent from the film, and this is on purpose, is the question of technology, because I'm, I'm, I don't see uh, technology and, you know, especially social media as a sort of um, driver of our democratic decline, as kind of a lot of people are implying mm. these days about fake, fake news or misinformation, right? I see right. Um, social media is sort of symptomatic. And I wrote a book in 2014 called The People's Platform, Taking Back Power and Culture in a Digital Age that makes right. the argument that the pathologies of our digital media and, and technology in general are actually, they've sort of, they're, they're the problems that have been with us all along. So questions of economics. So, you know, what, what's happening online and social media, why is there why is there fake news online? Well, because people click on it. And, right. and it's got a media, media system that is, driven by clicks and data collection. And right. so, you know, it's the e- how the economic incentives are aligned. So, after writing a lot about the internet and, you know, in technology, I've, I've sort of expanded out and, yeah, I wrote this piece. Um, it, it, there's a longer version of it actually in a magazine called Logic that is this really wonderful new tech magazine. And uh, and that one's called The Automation Charade. And it's, it's I have to say, it's probably the most popular thing I, I've written. And <laughs> I was like, wanting people to go watch my films and then this article sort of went everywhere and it, it resonated with sort of everybody from engineers and programmers right. to, to people who run uh, unions um, to uh, users of technology and my argument is basically in that piece is that you know, hear a lot about automation and right. automation is real. We know that you know machine learning is powerful and um, we know that uh, many tasks are being done by machines and they were previously done by humans but that there's actually a lot of stuff that's called automation that is not automated. I, and so what I say is it's automated, F-A-U-X, so it's fake automation. Mm. There's actually a lot of work being done to create the facade of automation, to create the appearance of robots doing work or an interface doing work when actually it's just sort of humans <laughs> behind the machine. So, right. so one example is when we check our own luggage in at the airport or when we, you know, bring up our own groceries like that's not really automation that's just that i'm being the grocery store checkout person right, right. oh yeah i'm onto okay. that trick yeah i was onto that trick as soon as it start, as soon as it started happening i was like you guys just made me another high school employee exactly and so that you know i'm like we shouldn't dignify that with the term automation because that's actually all that is is companies trying to you know boost their profits by getting rid of workers and having customers do the work for free and right but you know then there are cases where so there are more people cleaning up the internet, right? Like, you know, making sure that it's not just totally horrifying what's posted on there. There are more people doing that work for Google and Facebook, but through contractors, you know, when they work in the Philippines, they work in India, 
then there are actual employees of Facebook and Google and these big tech companies. So it's like, and we, we are given this facade that it's just like, it just happens like magic. So there's all this invisible work. So I think automation, automation is both a reality, but it's also an ideology. And so when when, the powerful use, you know, promotes this idea that there's going to be a robot revolution or the robots are taking our jobs Mm -hmm. as the robots have agency. My point is that no owners are investing. They're making targeted investments in technology that de-skills work, that speeds work up, that dehumanizes work, and that extracts more profit. And we need to be very critical and not just buy into the type that's inevitable, right? Because there's lots of meaningful, important work that could be done. And, you know, the question is, how do we manage our economy? There's not some inevitability. And so it's the same sort of thing. You know, robots are taking our jobs. Immigrants are taking our jobs. And what this does is it creates fear. It creates a sense of powerlessness as though these are natural forces when they're not, right? Right. This is all of, these are all political, um, uh, decisions and it's about power. It's not about, you know, some, something that's just happening, right? And so therefore, like, like Luddite. If we don't, if we, if we resist. Well, absolutely. And maybe you can give me some more insight on this of sort of like scapegoats. And obviously, yeah. I think, you know, you make a great point regarding automation and uh, as if these robots have agency and they're coming in and legitimately taking our jobs as opposed to uh, what you just said, which is um, basically human run corporations uh, cutting costs and finding ways um, to get uh, to get people to do more work uh, for themselves with this guise of automation. And now we have Donald Trump. And of course, of course, uh, immigration is a cornerstone of his political base, anti-immigration, specifically anti-Hispanic, Spanish-speaking uh, immigrants. What's what's the history of, of sort of scapegoating different groups of people or uh, automation? Has this just been ha- yeah. uh, happening in every civilization, in any so-called democracy? You know, I, th- I think it's hard, uh, hard to generalize. I mean, it is a recurring trend, but I absolutely want to overplay it, so... I just finished a book. I have a companion book that's coming out, companion book to the film, and it's called Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. Right. And this book is coming out May 7th, and, and there's a chapter that deals with the question of, like, you know, democracy and exclusion, and I look at the history of xenophobia and, and the world democracy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and one thing, I, I say some statistics, and you know, the truth is, is that approval ratings for immigration are at an all-time high. I mean, right. there's Recent polls show that actually the um, the attention on the border, all right, and and the, the the anti-immigrant rhetoric that Trump has been promoting has actually caused people to be more negative towards the idea of the border. People like the idea of a of a of a wall, you know, to, to uh, separate the United States and Mexico more when Obama was the president. They right. like it less now. So I, I think it's really important that we not exaggerate how popular xenophobia is. Right, and I think we have to also like understand how it has been specifically cultivated, because it serves interests and it serves two people's interests. One, it serves the interests of employers who do like to pit domestic workers against foreign workers who who are more vulnerable, right? Because totally. they don't have the same rights; they can be paid less. Right, um, and it also you know promotes. It also benefits uh, the people who are involved in um, you know getting contracts. To build not just the walls, but also the surveillance apparatus, right, and to get contracts um, policing the border or setting up immigration detention centers. Right. And, and so those numbers, you know, numbers, human beings, I think they have a hard time counting sometimes. I mean, if you look at the refugee crisis, the so-called refugee crisis in Greece going back to 2015, so a million people 
arrived at the shores of Greece and Italy through the Mediterranean and the Aegean Sea. And, you, and that can sound like a lot. If, if your business depends on you making that number sound scary, that's a million people. Right. If you put that in context, you go, well, hold on, this is actually a continent of half a billion people, right? Right. In the scheme of things, this is completely manageable. Then, then it changes the way that that number resonates. And so I think one, one person in my film actually has this line and he says, who counts, who gets counted? And I think we really have to think about that, right? Who is, who is doing the counting? What is their agenda? Why right. do they want, um, why do they want a number to sound high and sound scary? Right. You know, what, um, no, absolutely. And, uh, but, it, but you're right. It, it totally goes back. It is, you know, there, there have been histories. I'm, I'm in Canada now. I'm a, Canadian citizen, and if you look at the history of Canadian democracy, what was what what is troubling for democracy and for, for self government is that actually, when Canada was connected to the British Empire, mm. the, the British Empire was imperialist, so it had colonies all over the world, and so um, Canada actually became much more xenophobic and had tougher racist immigration laws when it became a democracy. Interesting, right? Than uh, than when it was part of this imperial. Endeavor, which is like, you know, basically just like forcibly including right. people from countries all over the world. So, I mean, there is, yeah. there is a, there is a link between xenophobia and democracy, but it's, it's not intrinsic. It's not essential. And like I said, people are actually, people are turning off. People are turning away. Right from the idea of a militarized border. Oh, absolutely they are. And I think you're completely right when it comes to, if you look at, if you look at the polling data, it's extremely, it's, it's not well accepted whatsoever. And uh, I think yeah. you make a great point regarding when Barack Obama was uh, in office. I think there were some people who were much more willing to go along uh, with the government and what they wanted to do regarding immigration. And it didn't quite get the pushback that it gets when it comes out of the mouth of Donald Trump for a series of views very reasonable well, and that and that is that is a problem right yeah i mean that's a problem right if you are fine with anti-immigrant sorry if you're fine with anti-immigrant sentiment because it's coming out of the mouth of a democrat then you don't have any principles right you know right <laughs> yeah so. no absolutely and i argue that point uh, on a regular basis and i actually think uh yeah. michael moore for better or for worse i think sometimes he can get a little bit too in love with celebrity uh but in his light, mm -hmm. latest documentary he does go after barack obama quite hard specifically when it comes to uh what happened in flint michigan the rerouting of the water um that led to the murder of of uh hundreds if not thousands of people and of course the lead poisoning uh that is still going on to this day and barack obama siding with the Governor Schneiderman, I believe his name was. I think he's a criminal. Uh, you know, that is really abhorrent stuff. Um, but I want to talk to you a little bit about messaging and how uh, I wonder if you're encouraged or discouraged based on it just seems to me what we're living in in this Trump era. People have now, you know, it's 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 been normalized to a degree that I was hoping it wouldn't quite get normalized. I think people are still like, this is weird, but not quite uh, to the extent that I think they should be in many ways. What do you, what about just consistent messaging coming from government, coming from leadership and how that does seem to work? We're doing a three-parter on Joseph Mengele on last podcast on the left, so obviously talking a lot about uh, the rise of uh, the Nazis and things like that and I'm not equating the two, I, uh, you know, and yeah. I'm just simply talking about how political messaging seems to work. What are your thoughts on how vulnerable or easily manipulated the human mind can be when it comes to democracy oh my god it's an epic question i mean it it is troubling what people accept but that that is the history of the united states 
<laughs> you know, right. and, and the fact that we live in a country where plenty of horrible things have been perfectly legal. From right. Slavery through segregation, through the treatment of wives was literally the property of husbands right. who could do with their spouses what they wanted, including rape them and beat them. So, I mean, right. it's like, you know, common sense, I guess, you know, for me, the, the optimistic reading of this is like, okay, common sense can change, and what's acceptable can change mm. dramatically, even in a generation. And, and um, you know, I, I see some of the normalization of Trump as also just symptomatic of the American political system, which is a winner-take-all, first-past-the-post two-party system. And, and so what happens, you know, is that, you know, people, you know, they, they stuck to the party. They stuck to... Right. They, they didn't want to break with the Republican Party, and so it's like this is this is that's um, a feature of of our political reality, and it's right. a major problem because what it did is it, it changed the common sense for for so many people who are part of that um, coalition. Right. Um, and you know, perhaps one of the answers is that then we have to think about the structure of our democracy, right? Other ways um, that politics could be arranged for that that doesn't happen. I mean, if we had a system with multiple parties and proportional representation, then maybe there would be this sort of fringe white supremacist party, but it wouldn't actually be able to take over one of the only two, you know, right. um, political entities. Uh, so I think there's, you know, there's, there's, there is something very scary happening, and it, it's, it's the kind of um, compromises that people will make to keep power. It's a, it is, a, you know, also a, a resistance to change. You know, I think we are seeing, you know, something very powerful in, in just in nostalgia, right? In this idea, mm. like we're going back to a past that never really existed. Right. That was more, you know, patriarchal and, you know, where, you know, older uh, white people ruled the day. <laughs> you know, I, I, but it's a complicated, it's a complicated question, I think. But I think right. your point is like, democracy is not always pretty. And that is right. one real theme of this film is that, you know, so I go back to Plato and I go back to the Republic, which is the foundational text of Western philosophy, and it's an anti-democratic text. And Plato says, um, you know, and this is this is expressed very beautifully by this um, by this Greek philosopher, this woman, and we're actually sitting in the the site of Plato's Academy, and she says, you know, Plato warned that democracy would devolve into tyranny because of wealth inequality, mm. because of the divide between the rich and the poor, and that the the the, the unruly passion of the people would, would lead them to elect this tyrant. And, um, and what Plato feared huh. most of all about democracy was that it, it marginalized the wise, right? And, and he thought that because, of course, the Athenian democracy put his mentor, uh, Socrates to death. And so, you know, the, these, these warnings about democracy, you know, have always been there. But the thing is, we've never, we've, we've, so, so Plato offered his medicine, which is this crazy idea that there should be these philosopher kings. And, you know, what's interesting is he said they could be men and women. He was, he was actually kind of, uh, I wouldn't say he was a feminist, but he was, he was, he was for gender equality on that front. Okay. But, you know, what we've never done is, what we've never done is sort of equalize, get rid of this problem of the divide between the rich and the poor, which is what Plato right. said is the source of the problem. And we, we don't do that because the forces of oligarchy, like the, the rich, the capitalists, call them whatever, are, are basically willing to go to whatever link, you know, to, to maintain their wealth and their power, even if right. it, it, you know, risks bringing the entire world down. <laughs> so, yeah. and you're know, destroying the climate. So, um, you know, it's, 
Uh, but democracy is, is a risky enterprise because it encourages people to question the legitimacy of the political system. And that's, that's, that can be a very powerful thing because it can lead towards justice and more inclusion. It can be a very dangerous thing. Right. Hey there, want a New Year's resolution you could actually keep? Stop going to the post office to send letters and packages when you don't have to. Hey, that's pretty. that sounds pretty fun. Save time and money this year by using Stamps.com instead. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer. That's exciting. Stamps.com is the fast and more convenient way to get postage. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. And the mail carrier picks it up. No more lugging mail to the post office and no more hassles. We use Stamps.com here at the studio and we couldn't go without it. When you're as busy as we are, Stamps.com makes it easy for us to make the most of our time and money to make sure you all get your last podcast shirts, pins, patches, and puppy bandanas right away. I use Stamps.com because when sending letters and packages is this easy, this reliable, and this efficient, why would you use anything else? I love Stamps.com. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale. So start the new year off right. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Top Hat. That's Stamps.com. Enter Top Hat. Well, you know, and it's interesting because uh, obviously with the Democratic field, I think there's going to be uh, it's going to be a vast field, I hope, for the Democratic Party. And I want to hear your thoughts on that, you know, sort of harkening back to what we saw in 2016 with the with the Republicans. And obviously, you know, you talk about people being able to uh, toe the party line in order to maintain power. Lindsey Graham, to me, uh, is just the personification of someone who went completely spineless, no backbone at all, just towed the party line after, of course, uh, what Donald Trump said about his best friend, uh, John McCain, and, you know, all the things that happened on the campaign trail with giving out Lindsey Graham's phone number and all that madness, and Lindsey Graham still supports him uh, to this day. But when it comes to the Democratic Party, we're going to have someone like an Elizabeth Warren out there, um, and then perhaps Michael Bloomberg uh, might throw his name uh, into the ring. Of course, a billionaire, former mayor here uh, in New York. He was a fairly fine mayor, except for the illegal third term, but we don't need to get into all that right now. Um, <laughs> are you excited to see any... Do you think that it's possible to, to move the needle when it comes to when it comes to wealth inequality at like a federal level? Is, is it even possible with the, with the powers that be, even with Elizabeth Warren? I mean, you know, she's worth 10 million bucks and even her, you know, it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like there's really any way to do it right now uh, because of what you were talking about with the, with the uh, oligarchs that sort of rule things at this point. Well, I think it's a really tricky task. I don't think we should underestimate it. I mean, so, you know, on the one hand, I think there has been a massive shift in sort of, you know, um, I wouldn't say common sense, but the way people feel empowered to talk about issues of economics and class publicly. You know, we have uh, the sort of, there is no alternative, uh, you know, Washington consensus of the 90s is, is gone. So there's there has been a shift. on, And it, what, what actually seems possible is that finally positions that were actually always pretty popular, like taxing the rich, are now just being said aloud. <laughs> so that's, mm. that's interesting. But I think there are, we have to be realistic about the major structural obstacles. Even if somebody like Warren was the president, right, or, you know, Bernie Sanders was the president, they would have, they would be facing immense resistance. 
and this is, you know, this is a democratic dilemma as well. It's like you can't, you know, democracy is not just electing someone who has the same, you know, political views that you like and then expecting them to like magically fix everything. That was right. part of the problem, problem of the Obama era. The people were like, okay, you know, this guy's going to hope and change everything for right. us. And he wasn't able to do that, right? Well, I mean, you know, once the person is elected, one of the ironies is that's when the work begins, uh, both for that person and for the people that helped put that individual in power. Yeah, I mean, this is, I feel like one basic lesson, you know, that, that I wish, you know, Americans would really accept is that you actually, it's when your team wins that you then actually engage in pressure techniques, right? right. Because those are the people you can move. You can march all day against the war in Iraq, you know, like in 2003, the biggest you know, anti-war march in, oh, yeah. in history. And, you, and we, you know, there was, there was not someone in office who was going to, to hear that. So I think we need to, the problem with this kind of sports team mentality is like, okay, my side won. You know, I, right. I like, I voted for Obama. It's like, no, well, that's actually who you have to engage now in a kind of adversarial relationship with. Yeah. So to, to make him do the thing. I mean, hell, it's working for Donald Trump and Ann Coulter. Like, literally, Ann Coulter and, and Sean Hannity, uh, both people who I've met, and, uh, you know, they're it's bizarre to meet them. But uh, they literally, like, they are following through with Donald Trump. They are like, no, bro, you can't bend on the wall. And he did, and then they're... Yeah, they're, they're, so they least, give him shit every day. Every day. <laughs> right. Yeah, they do. I mean, and it's, I think there's something about that. I mean, my film, um, so, you know... There's a parallel story in the film about ancient Greece, and so this, this warning of uh, the rich and the poor, but then there's modern Greece. So I look at the uh, sovereign debt crisis, and then there was this massive referendum in Greece, and basically, you know, the Greek people voted uh, against austerity, and and they, and they um, their political leadership through the party wasn't able to follow through and, and sort of betrayed the popular will. And I tell that story as a way of, you know, rem- presenting just how steep the challenges are. So, right. you know, the progressives in Greece, they did everything that you are supposed to do. They organized, they had occupations, they built a political party, they right. went on strike, their political party won, they took over the government, they had parliament and they had, you know, prime minister was, was on their side. And yet because of, um, you know, how par- powerful, uh, bigger, you know, transnational forces were and the power of markets and the fact that we're right. all in this global economy meant that, you know, they didn't even win after doing all of that. So it's a, it's, it's a sad story, but it's also just to remind us that, you know, right, we don't just elect, even if we do manage to put um, a Democrat in office, it's not, there's not going to be, you know, uh, Medicare for all overnight. Right. So people have to be ready to build power from the base. <laughs> This has been an issue. This has been driving me crazy lately. When it comes to the binary choices that we have, oftentimes we talk about, you know, uh, same coin, two different sides, and there's mild differences in many ways. Um, there could be a lot more differences. It's amazing what everyone seems to agree on in, in, in a lot of ways. But when it comes to, let's see, what's going on right now regarding the Middle East, regarding Syria, a lot of people are, like, upset that Donald Trump, I mean, you know, he gets a lot of stuff wrong. But when it comes to pulling out troops, I'm like, we shouldn't have been there in the first place. I really don't have a problem with it. But now you turn on, like, MSNBC, corporate media, and they're banging the, you know, the drums. Uh, uh, you know, if we need to stay there because four Americans just got killed by ISIS. They're not gone. It's like, well, they wouldn't have been killed if they weren't there. It is so difficult as someone who wants to be principled, uh, stand out against war, foreign uh, intervention in many ways, when we have a process where they just it just seems to constantly shift, and now we have a left that seems to be more 
in favor of foreign intervention and in favor of of institutions like the FBI or the CIA, COINTELPRO, I mean, the horrible things that the FBI uh, has done historically. So, I mean, that just seems to be extremely frustrating as someone who wants to be more principled and holds, uh, you know, true to some kind of moral view. So how do, like, what's the yeah. what's the option for someone who is anti-intervention, who is also skeptical of our, you know, institutions because they have done some extremely nefarious things both at home and abroad, and now we have this process where you can't even get, like, we know, because we have a Democratic Party that's trying to appeal right now to Bill Crystal. I mean, it, it's just driving me crazy. Oh, I'm, I'm going to be on a panel with him in a couple of weeks. So, well, that, um... tell him I said hello. <laughs> I'm sure he's a very nice man. I just don't, you know, but that's what, you know, when we when you look at Bill Clinton coming in in the early 90s, he came in on criminal justice, like, but being a hawk, not on reform, on making it worse for, for the American people and, and monetizing human suffering more than ever. So it, it, I think that's why some people are just really frustrated right now. Right. Well, I mean, and I, I, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know if I ha- have much to really, you know, add to that. I mean, I think again, it's this partisan politics, and, right. and ultimately, we are in a political system. It's winner take all, so it's either A or B. And you know, I'm not making this oh, it's tweedle or tweedle argument. I'm just saying that what what this does is ultimately, it's like it's either you know, you have two teams to pick from, and so right. people are willing to. If they see that you know, siding with uh, the national security state is going to give them an advantage. Then you know suddenly uh, there's this total amnesia right. <laughs> historically, and I think in the long run that that's really dangerous. I yeah. think it's I think it's a winning strategy to be honest. I I do think there's a way in which it just reinforces a kind of cynicism, right? Because it does just seem like these these parties are are out for themselves, and yeah, um, and ultimately they just want to win. So I think I think there will be sort of long long term kind of corrosive effects. Um, right. And, you know, hopefully, and that's why I think it's important that we do see a new generation of political talent coming up that seems to be speaking in a different way, to be speaking more honestly, to have their allegiances not to the party structure itself, but to the community. You know, I, I'm not against party structure. I'm not like, oh, parties are always bad. It's really about the way the Democratic Party in the United States is um, is set up. So, you know, it's, it's on the one hand, this really broad tent. Anyone can join it. Like, right. you, just, you know, just declare your membership. Um, but the, what that means is that people who are registered Democrats actually don't have a lot of power because they're not like paying membership dues or something, right? right. So the, the party's accountable for the big donors. So it's this weird paradox where it's at once really open and capacious, but then there's, there's, there was the ultimate like structure is, uh, is loyal to, you know, the people who are, are writing the checks. And so, you yeah. know, one could imagine, I can imagine party formations that I think are, are you know, uh, are, are better. So I'm not, I, I do think people need to organize themselves into, into parties and, and, and use that as leverage to uh, push for change. But there's something about the American political system that is right. uniquely, um, yeah, uniquely fucked up. Well, it is it is set up to move extremely, extremely slowly, and I have to say they are doing a great job at that. Yeah, well, it, the party, the Democratic Party, too, was built from the inside out, so it's different than a European-style labor party, which has its roots in labor movements and was working-class people organizing themselves to push for change, right? To push right. the center for change. The you know, a, 
anyone who knows American history knows that you know, the founding fathers were against parties, they were against factions, and then, of course, parties formed. And then what those parties needed to do was to get people to vote for them. Right. So we have, you know, it's part of, again, it's part of understanding history. We have these parties that started in the center and just want people to vote. They don't really want them to be too involved. As opposed to, you know, something that would be truly transformative, which is a party rooted in people power. Right. It's trying to change the system from the outside in. Yeah. Again, the documentary, it's called What is Democracy? If you're in New York, it's playing at IFC. Highly recommend going to check it out. Uh, we're talking with Astra Taylor. Thank you so much for being on the show. Let's just talk a little bit more about the documentary specifically, what the process was like when you were putting this whole thing together. And do you just want to talk about how the hell do you go about uh, an undertaking such as this documentary, because this question, what is democracy, is, uh, I mean, it's just such a big one. Yeah, I, funny, I never really paused to think about what a big undertaking it was. I think I just plowed, plowed ahead. Um, but it was, you know, at, at the at the end of the edit closed in, I, I, you know, I struggled to get certain things right. I mean, so how do you, so, you know, in, in a film about democracy, you of course have to represent the people. Yeah. <laughs> so the question is, you know, how do you do that in, an, in a movie that's an hour and 45 minutes and make it feel, you know, sort of vast enough and diverse enough but not overwhelming and all over the place. So that was, that was a real challenge. And I guess the interesting thing is going back to sort of what you were talking about earlier with like who's doing the counting, who are the people? Yeah. You know, who are the people that you yeah. are like, I want to represent? Yeah, and so this is the thing. So there's, there's sort of three threads in the film. So one is the United States and looking at the relationship between racial justice and economics, right? The fact that we, that, that this country was founded in, um, in slavery and that we haven't, um, uh, you know, this is a problem that is still really with us. So right. There touches on the civil rights movement, touches on, um, Black Lives Matter, but in a, in a philosophical mode, again, mm. in a philosophical mode, but sort of the, these are the sort of foundational issues. Then also, as I said, Greece, so going back to ancient Greece, but then also contemporary Greece and the economic crisis and the refugee crisis. And then there's a thread set in Siena, Italy, that's looking at this painting. And I chose uh, Siena because it's actually the home of the world's oldest bank that's been existing, that this, that's existed uh, since 1472, right? Oh, okay. So the center, it was one of the centers where finance developed. Okay. So it kind of it stands in for the, the beginning of capitalism and and, I, and I'm, there's a scene with this painting that is the first secular fresco called The Allegory of Good and Bad Government. And so what this does is it gives me, so through these channels, I'm able to explore the history of capitalism, the history of democracy, right. and, you know, issues of race and xenophobia and the question of borders. And so the film has this very big scope. And so the people you see in it are, you know, there are politicians, the former prime minister of Greece is in the film, there are philosophers like Cornel West, Sylvia Federici, Angela Davis, this uh, wonderful political theorist, Wendy Brown. But then everyone, you know, otherwise, you, what, what I tried to show was that the people who are experts in democracy who we really need to be listening to are people who know intimately what the problems are. Right. So I talked to refugees. I talked to immigrant workers in a factory. I talked to kids in a school that's really underserved, where they're, they're basically, you know, um, at the bottom of the social ladder. And right. I asked people... I treat people like they're philosophers and I ask them about justice and I ask them about democracy and I ask them about what they want to see in the world and what right. their lives are like. And, uh, and so what you get a sense of is not just the people, but also a philosophical people, people wrestling with ideas 
and in trying to figure out this question, what is democracy? Right. Well, I'm interested to hear some of the responses from the uh, from the children, because, of course, because of wealth inequalities we've talked about, uh, when it comes to education, that's where you really see it manifest itself. And that has a permanent effect on somebody's life uh, if they don't go through. Um, you know, I know I was just reading uh, a little bit about yourself and, and you you didn't go to school until you were 13, right? Yeah, I was I was uh, unschooled. I was raised in a very countercultural way. So I, I never had a bedtime. I never had a alarm bell. I was never told to do anything. I never got a grade with total freedom. well that sounds kind of fun but when it comes so when it comes to these children i'm interested to hear like what were some of their what were some of their views of 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 democracy because certainly in many ways uh, democracy hasn't hasn't treated them right at this point yeah well that's you know that's sort of the basic thing i mean there's there's almost this platitude right when you just talk to people about the problems that we face in society and they go oh the solution is education and you know i really feel bad for teachers for educators because they're expected to do everything from like Fix democracy to prepare students for jobs that actually don't exist because right. the economy is not in, under their control. Yep. Um, you know, and um, and you know, also fix students' psychological health and all of these. These you just put so much on their shoulders. So yeah. I I applaud teachers on so many levels. But, totally. Like, you know, when I ask these kids based on like, do you have democracy in their school? I mean, the answer is like, duh, no. And they they actually look at me like for a moment, like, who is this crazy Canadian lady? Why is <laughs> Ask this question, and, right. but then I dig a bit, and what you realize is that the point of the scene is that you know they are getting educated in democracy, and it's, it's an anti-democratic curriculum because what happens, and I'm just going to like give a spoiler, but these kids were like 12, 13. They tell me that they wanted the lunch to be hot. They didn't care. They, they accepted the fact that food wasn't good, but the fact that it was cold, the right. dignity that, that is they, heartbreaking. That went too far. And they asked for, for warm food and they were punished. And what you, what I, what I think what this scene shows, and then they talk about how power works. And they talk about the fact, no, it's not the teachers. It's not even the administrators. The school is ruled by bigger people, bigger than us, bigger than our parents, bigger than the teachers. Right. They understand how power works. And they understand that democracy doesn't exist if you can't exercise your voice, if you can't ask for these basic things. And so it's a, it's a heartbreaking scene, but it's also, you see that they're, so capable that these kids are really astute and, right. and one in particular is just like wonderfully eloquent and so in that scene I'm trying to show hey we are we are not honoring people's capacities absolutely right? we've got there's something wrong with our society if these are the lessons that we're teaching kids and there's no denying them the kids are very upfront right right because we're black and we're poor and we get it already at 14 and you also see the fact that as they get older there's two groups and the older group is that much more beaten down. They're just like, I just need to grin and bear it. I cannot fight back. There's no point. And this is, you know, this is a parable about our our world today. Mm, and, right. and the fact that we are in a society that, you know, basically some people get on this escalator and get raised to the top, <laughs> whether they're talented or not. And it right. typically has to do with how much wealth their parents have. And, yep. and uh, you know, it correlates with the color of their skin. And then a lot of people are sort of, you know, kept... Um, uh, on the bottom rungs, maybe one or two will get out, and then we'll say, "Hey, we've got a meritocracy." That's yeah. Up oh the my god! A, I think yeah. it's a really important one. I know fail, failing up is a real phenomenon. Uh, yeah, that failing is for up sure. is a real you thing. It, 
you see it in the entertainment industry on a regular basis and you're like how did that person yeah. get there and they're like oh that's right their their mom or father was a producer and whatever anyway but i don't want to be better i'm not being better yeah no uh, i'm yeah, not no, gonna do that a, we can be, you can be a little bitter you just gotta bounce back that's exactly you gotta you know there is still you know our little our little network you know we're, we come from, not from much and uh so it, it you can still you can still do it you gotta work hard and uh, but of course you know um yeah, I mean, it's just totally accurate, and it's so disheartening uh, when people are um, really just totally they're not they're not totally screwed. But you know, let's be honest, it's just not going to be an easy road. And yeah. then uh, you know, when everyone you know, specifically when it comes to immigration, again, when it comes to immigration, you know, everyone's talking, uh, go about it the right way, become a legal immigrant the right way, or legal citizen the right way. And it's like, well, you closed every freaking door and you nailed every window shut. There is no right way. And technically. When a folk, when someone does come over the border uh, and seeks asylum, that's the right way, and you still demonize them. And uh, you know, when it comes to education, yeah. uh, I just don't. Um, it's just so hard when you want to look at test scores and you want to you want to say, well, I'm sorry, you weren't able to get in because X, Y, and Z. The reason they couldn't get X, Y, and Z is because they were totally disadvantaged from from the very beginning. What uh, you, you know the history? Do you know the history of the word meritocracy? No, I don't. Yeah, so the word meritocracy, it's quite funny that this is this word that people kind of hold on to as an ideal. So, you know, if we were, if we are a meritocracy, then, then things are fair, or if we could be a meritocracy, things would be fair, because it was actually a term coined by this British uh, writer and sociologist named Michael Young, and, and he wrote a satirical book, and it was a satire of a world where those with merit got to rule. And what he basically said was that this would be a terribly undemocratic world, because people who had that advantage would then perpetuate it, right? right? They would do exactly what was saying today. So the irony is that this guy kind of wrote, he wrote this very prescient book outlining the system we actually have today, only he was doing it to say, here's what it would be called, and it would be terrible. Wow. Right? Because the people on top would actually believe that they deserve it. Wait, so our entire, our entire, poli- our entire political <laughs> philosophy is based off a of satire? Yeah, and the guy is still alive, and he's written a few things. Oh, God. Well, now it makes more sense. Now it's actually all coming together for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, when it comes to going, just just, just really quick, when it comes to education and teachers, I just want to hear your thoughts. Obviously, we have the teacher strike out in uh, L.A. Uh, teachers are, as you mentioned, I think one of the most um, – uh, maligned one of the one of the groups of, of people that aren't paid enough. Uh, they're blamed for everything. Um, do you think there's something nefarious with the lack of proper education in this country? Do you think that there's something to people saying keep them uneducated? Um, that gives us a reason to uh, to have them stay down. I don't. I mean, if you mean nefarious as in um, purposeful and um, evil, then yes. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it's not a conspiracy. If you look at the history of education in this country, it is a, a saga of, you know, class conflict, basically. Um, you know, I mean, originally the children of the poor and working class weren't educated. They were they were child laborers, right? right? I mean, they, they worked in factories until very recently in human yeah. history, right? Um, and then when child labor was finally outlawed or, you know, even just the hours reduced and, you know, um, elites were like, oh no, what are we going to do with these kids? So that was part of what propelled the push for um, 
for public education. Of course, there were well-meaning reformers who who recognized that public education is something that everyone deserves. And right. We shouldn't we shouldn't deny that history. It's just that there are there are multiple motivations happening, right. and you know there was a push for a separate education track, you know, vocational education training for for working people, and you know, and and. and uh, People were very explicit about their intentions. They basically said, you know, we don't want folks to get educated and to get uppity. Somebody's got to work in the mines. Someone's got to, um, you know, work in the fields. Right. And we don't want them thinking too much. And so this is, these are, you know, just read the history books. This is, this is what education in, in America is about. And, and people, working people have always fought for more. I mean, you can go back and look at, um, you know, People who worked in cigar factories used to pay. They used to pull their money and pay someone to read poetry to them or read a, a political philosophy. Right. Uh, workers, you know, organized night schools. They organized um, uh, new immigrants, uh, you know, on the Lower East Side of New York, like famously organized language classes and 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 reading groups to elevate, um, you know, elevate their minds because they didn't want to just be, you know, treated as as bodies that couldn't think. So, right. you know, this. This is not a, it's a, it's a very, um, interesting history and it's, you know, and I think the fight, the fight continues to this day. I think what's, yeah. you know, what's fundamentally the problem with American public education is the way that we fund schools through property taxes. Right. And that Absolutely. gives us the of, of equality. It gives us the near of, uh, you know, access for all. But the fact is, is that certain kids get a lot more money. Yep. Than others, and those kids are, you know, disproportionately black and brown. And until we address that, and you know, I just think like equalized funding across the board, you know, are based on the cost of living. And there's a, there's a, you know, there's more, there's, there's tons of white kids out there living in poverty too, and because of that property tax yeah. uh, rule, I mean, there's just so many crappy freaking schools around this country. You drive through, if you've ever, if you've ever had the wonderful joy of driving through Indiana and just seeing what Gary, Indiana looks like, I mean, it's devastated. This country is devastated. You have teachers literally doing uh, fundraisers on the internet for, for basic supplies or for books, and we're the richest country. It's crazy. You know, in, in the world, it's it's crazy. So I think education, you know, I think it's a problem. I think, you know, we're getting to the end here, but, you know, our society is very strange. We're so, we act like voting is the sacred ritual, and yet we make it impossible. We're, we refuse to, you know, make Election Day a national holiday right. or automatically register everybody. So yep. there's like, okay, we say it's so important, but we make it so difficult. Education yep. is the same, th- same way. We say, you know, education is this, uh, it's the key to success, yep. and, and yet we have this, the system where teachers don't even have books. So there's, yep. there's a, there's such a gap between the ideal and how things actually are. And it, it, these are totally democratic problems, which is why democracy cannot just be electoral politics and voting. It has to be taking into consideration all of these other aspects of life right. and the underlying economics, um, and, yeah. and balance of power. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. I'm sorry I, for those listening. We, I, I, rescheduled uh, Astra Taylor like a thousand times and I would have said no to do my own interview so thank you so much for no um, for being patient no I, worries really fun thanks for having me thank you everyone check out the movie What is Democracy again if you're in New York it's at IFC right now um, thank you so much Astra I'll talk to you soon okay thanks take care alright everyone well thank you so much for listening that was my interview with Astra Taylor uh, check out her documentary What is Democracy um, also there's another documentary called Zirzek and uh, examined life. So check out both of those. I mean, 
Really awesome stuff. We got a lot of things to talk about here uh, on the show coming up in the very near future. Um, so we will uh, we'll be covering everything. We got some new people. I want to talk about Julian Castro. I got some Bernie Sanders news. That is top secret, folks. It's top secret news. I don't know. It's it's not great, but it looks like there might be something dropping in June uh, that could hurt Mr. Bernie Sanders. So we'll uh, we'll wait and see what happens there. Who knows? And uh, yeah, well, I guess that's about it. Obviously, Roger Stone got indicted. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff to get to, but uh, you know it's been it's been kind of a crazy week here. So I hope that you just enjoyed the interview. And again, uh, Kevin Barnett, we love you, buddy. Uh, let your friends know you love them out there. And uh, to anyone that came out to the Bell House show, the Lucas Bros put it on. It was great. It was me. Uh, brought Holden and Marcus on stage. Uh, Hannibal Burris, uh, Che was there. Um, obviously the Lucas Bros. You know we had a really nice time. Um, hanging out so that was fun so it was nice to see people at the bell house all right so yes we'll do more news stories we got we got a lot of news to we got a lot of news to cover but i'll do that uh on the well the episode coming out in like four days or something so you can hold on uh it'll all be coming out for you all right everyone love you hail yourselves talk to you soon this show is made possible by listeners like you Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.